So yes, welcome to the third meeting of the 142nd session of the Aristotelian Society. It's my very great pleasure um, to welcome Professor Cecile Fabre. Professor Fabre is Senior Research Fellow in Politics at All Souls College, Oxford, and Professor of Political Philosophy at the University of Oxford. She has previously taught at the LSE and the University of Edinburgh. She has published papers in a wide range of leading journals and also six books, Social Rights Under the Constitution, 2000, Whose Body Is It Anyway, 2006, Justice in a Changing World, 2007, Cosmopolitan War, 2012, Cosmopolitan Peace, 2016, and Economic Statecraft, 2018, with a new book forthcoming, Spying Through a Glass Darkly, the Ethics of Espionage and Counterintelligence. As these book titles suggest, Professor Farber's research interests are in theories of distributive justice, the philosophy of democracy, just war theory, and the ethics of foreign policy, with a particular focus on the ethics of economic statecraft and the ethics of espionage. Her paper today connects epistemic with ethical issues and is entitled Doxastic Wrongs non-spurious generalizations and particularized beliefs. Please join me in welcoming Professor Farber. Thank you very much, Robert, for this very kind you know, introduction. Um, and thank you to the Aristotelian Society for inviting me to present the paper. Um, it's my second outing at the Society in the last 20 years or so. And um, I look forward to your feedback this afternoon as much as I look forward to the feedback I got on a very different paper you know, a while back. Um, uh, let me get straight into the paper. Um, you have links to the handout. Um, so I'm going to work on the assumption that you know, everyone has been able you know, to access you know, the handout. Um, let me start then by outlining two cases. The first one um, I call Posh Party. Although it's presented as a hypothetical scenario, it is in fact relating a depressingly familiar you know, experience to um, African you know, Americans, um, not least Barack Obama himself. Uh, in that scenario, we imagine someone who is a white male and whom I shall call Albert. Uh, Albert is a guest at a posh party and he spots an African-American man, whom I'll call John, who is wearing a tuxedo. And he forms the belief purely on the basis of John's skin color and attire that John is a waiter. He hands him over his cloakroom ticket and asks him to fetch his coat. In fact, John is the guest of honor at the party. In the second scenario, which I call board meeting, Albert has been invited as a consultant to speak to the board of a FTSE 100 company. There is only one woman, whom I will call Susan, in the boardroom. Albert forms the belief, purely on the basis of her gender, that she's an administrative assistant. He hands over his USB stick and asks her to help him with his PowerPoint presentation. In fact, Susan is a board member. Now, in the literature on uh, prejudicial beliefs, you know, in general, um, cases such as these, you know, recur fairly regularly. Um, here is a standard claim, you know, in that literature. The standard claim is that Albert, in both cases, wrongs John and Susan. He has a belief about them which happens to be false and which is grounded in race and gender-based stereotypes. 
Moreover, he acts on that belief. Here is a less standard claim. The less standard claim says that Albert wants John and Susan, even if the belief is true, even if that is John is a waiter, Susan is an administrative assistant. Moreover, the less standard claim says that Albert wrongs John and Susan, even if he does not act on his belief. The thought here at the heart of the standard claim is this more widely, we can wrong someone purely by holding certain beliefs about them, even if those beliefs are true. Now, in the literature on doxastic wrongs, to which I refer later on in, in the paper, um, the bulk of the discussion touches on cases where the belief is false. So on cases with which you know, I started, um, and namely um, cases in which John is the guest of honor at the party and Susan is a board member. There is very, very little discussion in that literature on cases in which the belief is true. And these are the cases which interest me you know, this afternoon. Furthermore, and what I'm about to say, I don't say you know, on the handout. Furthermore, um, in those two cases, the belief is negatively balanced in the following sense. In the society in which we live, you know, one um, gets more esteem, you know, socially speaking, from other people if one is a guest of honor at a posh party than if one is a waiter, if one is a board member than if one is a administrative assistant. Later on in the paper, I will look at cases where the belief is positively, you know, balanced. And I will give you a scenario, you know, of that kind. What I want to try and argue you know, this afternoon and in this paper, is that a plausible argument for the doxastic wrong thesis for those cases in which the belief is false will, and negatively balanced, will also extend to cases where the belief is true and or positively balanced. In other words, another way to put the point is that there are more, many more kinds of doxastic wrongs, you know, than um, the literature seems you have uncovered, you know, so far. Now, before I deploy my argument to that effect, I want to give a, a primer on the notion of doxastic wrongs, um, you know, in case there are, you know, some people um, uh, in, the, in the seminar which are not familiar, you know, with, with this particular notion. That's section two on your handout. Suppose that some agent X believes that P about some other agent Y. The doxastic wrong thesis says that X can wrong Y under certain you know, conditions. Now, there are two very important dimensions you know, of the, the thesis which we must bear in mind, namely that the wrong is located in believing that P as distinct from acting on the belief that P. Moreover, the wrong is directed at the subject of that belief. So let me say something about both dimensions briefly in turn. Consider first the location of the wrong. It is the belief and not just the act where the wrong lies. Albert wrongs John merely by believing that John is a waiter, irrespective of Albert's you know, behavior. Now here we must disambiguate the word believing. And what I want to say is that forming a belief can be wrong under some circumstances. So forming a belief to the effect that in false belief cases, for example, John is a waiter and Susan a administrative you know, assistant. 
However, I do not believe that forming a belief is a necessary condition for wronging the holder you know, of that belief. Um, so suppose, you know, for example, that Albert swallows a pill which has a very, very curious side effect, um, namely that Albert is instantaneously holds stereotypical beliefs about African-Americans having had no beliefs you know, at all you know, of that kind you know, before. He has not formed those beliefs. He has not you know, engaged in the activity of belief in a formation. It does not follow, however, that there is no circumstances under which Albert can be deemed to wrong John. So suppose that Albert, having swallowed his pill, you know, realizes that not everyone holds stereotypical beliefs about African-Americans. He also realizes that there is evidence out there which undermines those stereotypes. And he also realizes that those stereotypes are controversial, morally speaking. However, he refuses to investigate his spill-induced belief in the light of this new evidence. Now, it seems to me intuitively plausible to say that he wrongs John, notwithstanding the fact that he has not engaged in the activity of belief formation. His wrong is located in his holding and refusing to try and school himself out of that belief about John. So these are the two cases I have in mind, you know, when I say that believing can be wrongful to the subject of that belief, the case in which the agent has formed a belief, and the case in which he perhaps has not formed the belief, but refuses to score himself you know, out of it. Turn next, the very bottom of page one on your handout, to the direction of the wrong. Now, on some views, Albert's wrong lies in his failure to display doxastic virtues, or in his failure to live by the principle that, in general, we ought morally to keep an open mind about people. But the doxastic wrong thesis goes further. By assuming on the basis of his race, together with the context in which he encounters John, that John is a waiter, Albert wrongs John. The wrong is directed at John. Now, I'm perfectly aware that the doxastic wrong thesis is a pretty tough sell, for it seems to imply that there are such things as, in common parlance, thought crimes. I want to say a few words to motivate you know, the thesis, top of page two on your handout. Suppose that John overhears Albert describe to his partner on the phone what the party is like, how helpful the waiters are, and so on. And it's absolutely obvious that by waiters, Albert means John amongst others, and that he has formed his belief on the basis of John's race that John is a waiter. And to this, that when he's challenged by John, he apologizes for not finding an isolated spot before placing the call. Now here, it seems that his apology misfires, for the problem is not just that he has unnecessarily run the risk of offending John, the problem is that he has formed a false belief about John with no evidence other than a context-based context and race-based generalization. That is John's grievance, and it is one that is not addressed, not met by Albert's apology. Indeed, nor would it be addressed by Albert merely expressing regret that John is offended. 
Instead, Albert should admit that it was wrong of him to make this kind of assumption, and he should apologize for that. And his apology, moreover, is owed to John, were he to say to a fellow guest that he's sorry for mistakenly assuming on the stated grounds that John is a waiter, his apology would also misfire in this case. Now, the doxastic wrong thesis elicits two standard objections. The first objection I call on the hand the lack of control objection. And it goes like this. According to the objection, we are under a moral obligation not to fire only if we are morally responsible for feeing. Moreover, we are morally responsible for feeing only if we have some degree of control over fire. Given that we do not have control over what we believe, there is no such thing as a doxastic moral obligation and therefore a doxastic wrong. Now, in the relevant literature, the objection's normative premise that having control over whether to fire is a necessary condition for being under a moral obligation not to fire has come under sustained criticism, including in the context of belief. But even if the normative premise is true, its factual premise that we lack control over what we believe is not. Indeed, many of our practices, it seems to me, are intelligible only if we take ourselves to have such control and if at least sometimes we are proved to be right. For example, we undergo cognitive behavior therapy in the hope, often fulfilled, that we will be led to revise noxious beliefs. We embark on scientific inquiry in the hope, again, often fulfilled, that we will acquire justified beliefs and shed unjustified ones. When challenged on their manifest prejudices, some individuals have, found, have been found to respond to implicit attitude tests in less prejudiced ways. All that is needed for the doxastic wrong thesis to hold is that we have and can acquire some degree of effective control over at least some of our beliefs. The second objection goes like this, the wrong kind of claim objection. It says that reasons for forming, holding, and rejecting beliefs can only be epistemic reasons, grounded in whether the beliefs are true, what evidence there is to support or undermine them, and so on. According to the objection, the fact that a belief has morally problematic features is neither here nor there. Now, as many of you will know, in response to this kind of objection, some proponents of the thesis argue that moral considerations can make a difference to the epistemic status of a belief. In now accepted parlance, the former encroaches on the latter. Moral encroachment is a variant of pragmatic encroachment, according to which the epistemic status of a belief in part depends on the believer's pragmatic circumstances. So let me give you an example, uh, which will connect what I'm talking about today to the perhaps at first sight remote you know, topic of uh, the ethics of espionage on which I spent quite a bit of time you know, recently. So imagine that I'm sitting in the comfort of my study, you know, reading the newspapers, and I read that there is, you know, from a respected journalist reporting from Iran, I read that there is a, um, a nuclear, what seems to be, you know, a nuclear grade in an installation 50 kilometers west of Tehran. 
Now, it seems that, you know, given the credentials of that journalist, I'm licensed, you know, to hold the belief that it seems that there is a, you know, nuclear facility 15 kilometers west of Tehran. Well, I suppose now in the variant of the case that I'm the prime minister. So I have at my disposal, you know, all the resources of our country's intelligence agencies. I don't bother to ask intelligence chiefs, you know, whether or not they have evidence to the effect that there might be a nuclear facility 15 kilometers west of Tehran. I rely on exactly the same article from exactly the same newspaper by exactly the same journalist as I did, you know, in the first variant, you know, of the case. According to the pragmatic encroachment view, you know, the fact that in the second case, I am the prime minister, these are the new circumstances under which I find myself, makes a difference to the epistemic status of my belief. On that view, the prime minister is not epistemically licensed, you know, to form the belief that there is a nuclear facility 50 kilometers west of Tehran, just, you know, on the basis of a newspaper article. Whereas I, Cecile, you know, from the comfort of my study in Oxford, I'm epistemically licensed to form that belief. And you could run a similar you know, argument with moral encroachment. Now, moral encroachment is very controversial. Um, and it's so clear to me in any event that one needs to endorse it in order to accept the doxastic wrong thesis. One can grant that the belief is epistemically rational yet morally wrong. Alternatively, one can focus solely on epistemic norms. If the believer wrongs the subject of his belief by relying on patchy evidence, when he can reasonably be expected to have or procure better evidence, the believer's moral failure is traceable to his epistemic failures. So in what follows, I want to remain agnostic you know, on the soundness of moral encroachment as an account of the relationship between the moral and the epistemic status or features, I beg your pardon, of beliefs. And I also want to remain agnostic on the relationship between moral encroachment and the doxastic wrong thesis. All I need is the view for which I have provided some intuitive support that one can sometimes wrong another person merely by holding some belief about them. The question is which beliefs are of that sort. Now, in the um, long version of the paper, which some of you may have seen, um, um, I then move on to addressing an argument by Mark Schroeder, explicitly restricting the scope of the doxastic wrong thesis to false belief in you know, cases. I don't want to rehearse you know, my moves against Schroeder in my oral you know, remarks. Um, I, I would rather have a shorter presentation and a longer you know, Q&A. So I'm going to move straight to what I call the Kantian view. This is the argument that I try to deploy to show that um, the grounds on which Albert wrongs John and Susan in the cases in which he falsely believes, mistakenly believes that they are respectively a waiter and an admin assistant, also license us only in the views that Albert wrongs them in the cases in which his beliefs about them happen to be true. So section three on your handout, the Kantian view. Albert forms his true belief about John and Susan on the basis of a statistically accurate generalized belief. It really is the case that African-Americans are more likely to be waiters than guests at posh parties. 
and that women are more likely to be administrative assistants than FTSE 100 board members, facts of which Albert is well aware. Now, it does not follow from the fact that John is African-American and from the fact that any African-American is more likely to be a waiter than a guest at a Bush party that John is a waiter. Albert only has epistemic warrant for the claim that John is more likely to be a waiter than a guest. Likewise, mutatis mutandis regarding Susan. And the question is whether and if so, why? He wrongs John and Susan by accurately believing that they are respectively a waiter and an administrative assistant. Now, in a very interesting article on the doxastic wrong thesis, the philosopher Rima Basu uh, provides an argument which I use as a starting point. I mean, her argument focuses on cases in which the belief is false, but I think it does extend to cases in which the belief is true. Let us accept the Kantian principle that we ought to relate to one another as persons and not as objects. So for me to treat you as a person requires that in my dealings with you, I recognize that your occupation, your relationships, your political and religious views, and your hobbies are constitutive of your identity and your sense of your own worth. To treat you as a person on Basu's account means that I owe it to you that my beliefs about you in those dimensions should be responsive to and match the ways in which you describe and understand yourself. Failing that, I do not relate to you as a person. Rather, I form views about you as if I were, quote, observing a planet whose movements are only answerable to the laws of physics. The phrase observing a planet is drawn from Ray Langton's um, really, really interesting article, one of her many interesting articles on Kantian ethics. Now, so stated, the Kantian view is indifferent to the truth value of my beliefs. What matters is that my beliefs should be responsive to the person you are and take yourself to be. However, the Kantian view needs revising. For suppose that John and Susan identify with their job or that they actively disidentify with it or that they could not care less about it. The counterview so stated does not work in cases in which the true belief matches its subject self-description or in which the subject self-description is not engaged by the belief. Yet intuitively, it seems, at least to me, that Albert wrongs John and Susan in those cases as well. Suitably revised, then, the Kantian view shows why Albert wrongs John and Susan. The key in injunction, and I set out you know, the argument in short form, as it were, on the handout and the key claim, the key injunction is not that the beliefs about others should match their own views about who they are and their sense of their worth. Rather, I submit that to treat others as persons is to recognize in them the capacity to act autonomously, that is to say, to frame, revise, and pursue a conception of the good with which they identify. As Rawls would have it, it is to recognize that they have the moral power of rationality. This in turn requires that when forming and holding beliefs about them, we owe it to them to be sensitive to whatever evidence they have that they are conducting their lives as autonomous agents. Absent such evidence, we owe it to them 
to give them the benefit of the doubt. And so Albert owes it to John and Susan to ascertain what they do before forming a vindictive judgment about their occupation. If he cannot, will not, or indeed may not do so, lest he should unduly intrude on their privacy, he owes it to them to allow for the possibility that they do not fit the stereotype. Now, in doing so, and this is important, he need not occlude the structural constraints under which they operate, nor need he eschew all probabilistic beliefs based on statistically non-spurious and relevant generalizations about them. So if he asks by his dinner companion whether it is more likely than not that John is a waiter and answers in the affirmative, he does not wrong John. If he's asked whether John is a waiter and answers in the affirmative, he does. The important and familiar point is that he should not essentialize John by reducing him to the fact that he's African-American. And again, likewise, mutatis mutandis with Susan. The claim that we are under a duty to others to give them the benefit of this particular doubt mirrors in the domain of beliefs, precautionary principles for risk imposition under conditions of uncertainty. So suppose that I don't know whether my, um, I, I do not know uh, what my uh, neighbor's daughter Jane's napping habits are. Well, I owe it to her to act on the assumption that she might be in the driveway as I'm about to set off in light of the risks of serious harm to which I would subject her otherwise. Analogously, absent evidence to the effect that John and Susan lead autonomous lives, Albert owes it to them to presume that they do lead such a life. So long as one grants that holding certain beliefs on the basis of generalizations can wrong the subjects of those beliefs and that we owe it to others to take precautionary steps so as not to wrong them when faced with uncertainty about the relevant facts, one can endorse the claim that Albert owes it to John and Susan not to assume that they lack autonomy. And the point holds whether his beliefs, whether he assumes as much, are true or false. Now, um, this is the, the core of the argument um, with respect to the two cases with which you know, we started in the variance of the case where Albert's belief happens to be correct. Now, remember that um, at the very beginning of the talk, um, I pointed out that in those two classic cases, the belief is negatively balanced. It so happens that in the society in which we live, you know, being a waiter is less, um, uh, has, you know, negative balance, you know, relative to being a guest at a party, and likewise, mutatis mutandis, with being an admin assistant relative to being a FTSE 100 board member. And I want to push, you know, the point further by looking at a case which um, I haven't encountered, actually, in the literature on doxastic wrongs, um, you know, the case where, you know, the judgment is negative balanced, you know, in the stronger sense that the subject of the belief has committed a grievous wrongdoing. And the example that I have in mind, um, which I call knife crime, goes something like this. Albert is taking his usual walk through the London borough of Lambeth. He spots a young black teenager, call him James, 
crouching next to the lifeless body of another black teenager. And police and ambulance sirens can be heard you know, in the distance. Albert forms the belief, based on his perceptual evidence and the aforementioned facts, some facts which I'm about to rehearse, that James stabbed the lifeless you know, teenager in yet another episode of gang warfare. Now, here are the facts. Um, according to figures released in 2018 by the Office of the Mayor of London, slightly over four-fifths of the knife crimes which were committed in the capital the year before and which resulted in injuries were committed by men, and slightly over two-thirds by members of ethnic minorities. Two-thirds of the victims of non-domestic knife crimes are BME and almost all are male. Year on year, the boroughs of Lambeth and Southwark witnessed the highest number of knife crimes. Now, Albert's beliefs about this particular case do not rely on a spurious generalization, but there is something deeply morally problematic about it, nevertheless, I submit. Even if, let us suppose, James is guilty. The requirement that wrongdoers should not be treated on the basis of their race seems uncontroversial enough. The point here is that they ought not to be thought off on that basis either. Now, this seems pretty clear if Albert believes is false. As when, for example, James is a friend of the murdered victim and would have come to harm too, had he arrived on the scene 10 minutes earlier. But the point holds too if Albert's belief is correct. For he holds the belief that James killed the teenager on grounds relevantly similar to the beliefs he held in the case of Posh Party. Moreover, and this is um, this might seem seriously counterintuitive, but I'll just you know put it out there and you know let's see whether you know someone picks it up in the QA. It seems to me that in some respect he does James a greater wrong than he does John. For not only does he assume of James either that the latter has not escaped the constraints of his socially salient characteristics or that he's not conducting his life in reflective awareness of those constraints, in denial of James' capacity for autonomy. In addition, he fails to respect James as a moral agent. For it seems to me that to treat others as persons is not merely to recognize in them the capacity to act autonomously. It is also to recognize in them the capacity to act morally, that is to say, to form considered judgments about right and wrong and to lead their autonomously chosen life in the light of those judgments. It is, to put it differently, to recognize in them the capacity for moral responsibility. To invoke roles again, this is the second of our two moral powers, the moral power of reasonableness. It is far less extensively discussed in liberal political and moral philosophy than the power of rationality, but it is central to our moral lives. In the present context, the context of the case under consideration, Albert may not have evidence that James is conducting his life as a moral agent, but he also lacks evidence to the contrary, and he owes it to him to assume that he is so conducting his life. That is to say that he may have formed the belief that killing is morally impermissible under the circumstances and lived his life accordingly. Now, um, to say that Albert wrongs James 
by not suspending judgment in this case is to imply, amongst other things, that James has a grievance against Albert and that Albert owes James an apology for believing that James killed the boy. Remember, and I, I mean, of course, I did it, on, did it on purpose. You know, the, the point I made to motivate, you know, the doxastic wrong thesis at the very beginning, you know, um, dictate the form of um, inviting us to reflect that in the posh party case, Albert owes John an apology. And so it is the case to hear. Now, this is, um, it might seem counterintuitive because, well, it may be objected that in the light of his considerably more serious wrongdoing, James cannot justifiably make a demand of Albert, a demand for an apology, whose belief as to his culpability in fact, is accurate. The question is not specific to doxastic wrongs. It applies to practical wrongs and is raised by the racially driven imposition of hard treatment. If Albert openly berates James for committing murder, a belief which he forms on the basis of James' demographic characteristics, he acts without warrant, even if James did in fact commit murder. Albert owes James an apology, it seems, even though James' wrongdoing is far worse than Albert's. And there is no reason not to apply the point to doxastic wrongs. I mean, granted, in both cases, and particularly if James lacks remorse, we may think that it is wrong of James to demand an apology, but the fact remains that Albert owes it to him to issue it. Now, what I want to do is um, address some objections and a outstanding question to and about my remarks in you know, so far. Section four on your handout. The first objection is the demandingness objection. It says, look, this is, this is so demanding. Even if we have some degree of control over our beliefs, we often have unbidden thoughts about other people. We just can't help doing so. And we can't help relying one way or another on stereotypical judgments. In fact, it saves us an enormous amount of cognitive labor, thanks to which we can go about our lives. Even if we have some degree of control over whether to believe P or not P, it's very difficult you know, for us to switch from believing P to believing not P. It requires that we spend considerable amounts of time and cognitive energy examining relevant evidence against our existing beliefs. It requires that we shed our beliefs if necessary at the often painful cost of revisiting the relationships and experiences on the basis of which we formed them. Now, given the costs of the requisite epistemic labor, it seems harsh to say that we wrong those other people merely by holding those beliefs. And it seems even harsher still to say that we wrong those people to the point of implausibility when the beliefs are true. Now, by way of response, of course, there is a limit to what we may reasonably demand of one another. Furthermore, the constraints of our professional, social, and familiar lives, the failures of our will and imagination, our bringing, the context in which we conduct ourselves do make it difficult for us to revise our beliefs. So I want to concede you know, the fact or premise that drives you know, the objection. It seems to me, however, that once we become aware of those beliefs, it is harder to escapate ourselves for holding them. Generally, 
I want to say, even if um, an agent's belief are excusable here and now by dint of the fact that he um, has not engaged for good reasons in the epistemic labor required to shed them, it does not follow that he may not be called into account for holding those beliefs. Indeed, generally, at least if you accept that there is such a thing as strict moral liability, one can wrong another person by fine, even if one is blameless for fine. So that's my response to the demandingness in you know, objection. A second putative you know, objection, that's the top of page three, you know, on your handout, um, goes like this. Look, we, we sometimes do the right thing on the basis of prejudicial beliefs. So here's an example, which, um, you know, was given to me by my friend and colleague, you know, Kibani Brownlee, and which I have to say, I found very, very, you know, hard, you know, to, uh, to think about. Consider a woman called Betty who is often sexually harassed by men while traveling alone on public transports or walking down the street. So now, whenever she sees a man boarding her railway carriage or walking towards her, she can't help believing that he might end up harassing her, and she moves to a different carriage, or she crosses the street. Now, under those circumstances, the objection goes, it is rational and in fact morally warranted, objectively speaking, of her to do that. Do we really want to say that she wrongs those men not merely when her belief happens to be false, but even when it happens to be true, given that her belief is traceable to repeated threatening encounters and that it leads her to protect herself from an actual threat? Surely not, the objection goes. My reply at this point is this. The claim that Betty is morally justified in protecting herself from this kind of threat does not imply that the steps she takes to do so are themselves exempt from moral evaluation in general and from the charge of wronging the targets in particular. The objection goes through only if Betty is holding the relevant belief on the basis of which she takes rational and warranted protective measures does not wrong those men. But this, however, is precisely the point at issue. So, so stated, the objection, it seems to me, begs the question. Pending further objection in the light of the Kantian view as applied to wrongdoers, we can still say that Betty wrongs those men even though her belief is correct. However, and this is absolutely crucial, she's not blameworthy, precisely because of the recurrent wrongdoings which led her to form those beliefs in the first instance. There is no inconsistency here. One can be under a duty not to fire and yet not be blameworthy for firing. Let me then turn to the third final objection, that the Kantian view proves too much. So far, my examples have involved beliefs which, whether true or false, are negatively balanced and which are held by members of privileged groups about members of dis disadvantaged groups. So a sad difficulty with the content view is that by its own light, it implausibly charges with doxastic wrongdoing agents whose beliefs are about members of privileged groups and or are positively balanced. So consider board meeting T for the belief is true, star. Albert has been invited as a consultant to speak to the board of a FTSE 100 company. There is a white man wearing a suit in his mid-30s, standing near the head of the table, call him William. 
Albert forms the belief on the basis of William's race and gender that he's a vote member, and Albert happens to be correct. And the objection seems to say, well, it, it's absurd, really, um, you know, to think that Albert wrongs William. I mean, to be thought of as a FTSE 100 company board member is rather a good thing, particularly when the belief is correct, you know, the objection goes. My reply to this objection goes like this. The fact that Albert's belief is in one respect a good thing for William does not entail that it is not wrongful to him. Suppose to take a different example that Albert is a local celebrity who has been asked to hand out cash prizes at a show jumping competition. He's late and misses the show. The officials point out to him where the top three competitors stand. Two of the competitors are female and one is male. Without bothering to check the results, he hands out the top prize to the male rider, automatically assuming that he won on the grounds that Albert thinks male riders are more likely to win those sorts of events than female riders. Let us suppose that the generalization on which his particularized belief rests and the particularized judgment itself are correct. The male rider did win the competition. Now, there is a sense in which Albert benefits the male rider. He hands him a prize. But there is also a sense, it seems to me, in which he wrongs him by failing to give him the reward for the right kind of reason, namely that he was the most skilled rider on the day. By the way, the fact that this is the right kind of reason, it seems to me, is compatible with the views that his being the most skilled rider on the day can itself be explained in part by structural gender-based injustices. But that, it seems to me, is beside the point that I'm trying to make here. Now, this case is relevantly similar to board meeting star. If giving a reward on the affirmation grounds does not exonerate Albert from wronging the male rider, forming a positively valence belief on the aforementioned grounds does not exonerate him either. Now, in the written up version of the paper, I consider more you know, non-classic you know, cases. And as you know, those of you who had a chance to look at the text you know, will have seen, you know, I reached the overall conclusion that as far as I can see, you know, the Kantian argument which I deployed earlier initially to tackle cases in which the belief is false and negatively balanced applies to all of those non-classic cases. But there is an outstanding question, an important question that we need to look at, and that will be my final substantive point. Namely, that Albert's wrong seems worse, worse I beg your pardon, in posh party than in board meeting. It seems that if Albert commits a wrong in both cases, it is morally worse you know, to form the kind of particularized beliefs he forms in posh party than it is to form the particular particularized belief he has you know, in board meeting star. And the question is whether and how we can account you know, for this. And it seems to me that we can. The difficulty that I'm raising here is a familiar one in the literature on discrimination in general and racial profiling in particular. Profiling which targets members of um, uh, ethnic minorities and employment practices which are discriminatory against women 
For example, in the latter case, you know, in respect of bodily strength for certain jobs are particularly problematic insofar as they are parasitic upon and further entrench existing injustices. Even if the statistical generalization on which this practice is rest are not spurious and are not intended so to discriminate. And the thought here is this. In all but the most rarefied cases, such as that of a hermit, we cannot but communicate the beliefs we hold and the reasons for holding them. And indeed, more often than not, those beliefs manifest themselves sooner or later in various forms of treatment. When particularized beliefs based on socially salient characteristics are negatively balanced, are false, and take members of disadvantaged groups as their subjects, those beliefs are the worst, morally speaking, vis-a-vis -vis their subjects to the extent that there is a risk that they will be acted upon and that when acted upon, they are likely further to entrench existing you know, injustices. By analogy, go back to the case where I don't know whether my neighbor's daughter you know, is having a nap at the point at which I leave my house. In the case I rehearsed earlier, I drive off you know, without checking. But suppose now that I leave my house on foot at 2 p.m. listening to the latest recording of my favorite piece of music. I know that I have a tendency when listening to music to pay very little attention to my surroundings, and I'm also not particularly well-coordinated when I walk. So I set out on foot. I don't check, you know, whether Jane is having a nap. If I were to knock into her, she would incur a very minor injury, far less of an injury, than if I were to hit her with my car. My wrongful failure to check before I set off on foot whether she's paying the driveway is not as wrong as my wrongful failure to check before I drive off in my car. And the point holds even if Jane happens to be safely tucked up in bed. Likewise with duxastic wrongs. The fact that Albert does not manifest or act on his beliefs does not undermine the claim that he wrongs the subjects of those beliefs. The fact that where he so to act, he would harm them to a greater or lesser extent lends support to the view that some doxastic wrongs are worse than others. Uh, there is one implication uh, which in the paper appears in a footnote, but which I want to draw out you know, explicitly now. There's one implication of the view that I have just articulated. Namely, that this view does not have the resources to show that the hermit, who, let us assume, will live in complete isolation until he dies, does a greater wrong to John in Posh Party than he does to William in Board Meeting Star. My intuition here is that he wrongs them you know, to the same degree. There is no problem of risk imposition here because it will live, we stipulate, in isolation until he dies. So let me say now very briefly by way of conclusion, we wrong one another, doxastically speaking, when we hold about one another beliefs which manifest our failure to treat one another as autonomous and moral agents. The epistemic status and balance of our beliefs are irrelevant to the truth of the doxastic wrong thesis, that they are relevant to the degree to which we wrong you know, one another. Now, to some of you, um, uh, perhaps many of you, the claim that the Kantian view extends to what I have called non-classic cases might seem a reduction. But then it seems to me that the, on the onus is um, on 
you know, the skeptic to show either that particularized vindictive beliefs based on non-spurious race and gender-based or similar generalizations do not wrong the subjects of those beliefs, or to provide a different argument for the view that they do, which does not extend to the non-classic cases. Thank you very much. <laughs>